Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. Welcome back to another episode of Reimagining Love. Today's show is a deep dive episode, just me, just you, talking about creating happy and healthy relationships. And today is part two of our series called 10 Essential Skills for Navigating Conflict. Hopefully you have already listened to the first part of this series. If not, please check out the previous episode in the Reimagining Love podcast feed in which I detail the first five of these 10 essential skills for navigating conflict. If you are all caught up and ready to go, (laughs) keep on listening. So last week, just to remind you, we talked about the first five skills, which were understanding your conflict template, distinguishing between the lyrics and the music, adding structure to activate empathy, separating problem discussion from problem solution, and hating the moment, not the person. I wonder if you have had a chance this week to practice any of the skills in your relationship. And I wonder if you noticed anything different when you used that skill. Perhaps you felt a little bit less upset than you otherwise would have been. Perhaps your partner got a little bit less defensive than they otherwise would have gotten. Perhaps the tension between you dissolved a bit more quickly than it otherwise would have. These are all wins. When it comes to love, we are talking about progress, not perfection. And as I said in last week's episode, there is a really big difference between knowing what regulating our emotions and using empowered communication look like during conflict and being able to regulate our emotions and use empowered communication during conflict. This is the difference between awareness and enactment. And we've got to keep in mind that we get to be both whole as we are and forever works in progress. We are not always going to get it right, 
but we can commit again and again to a growth mindset and we can commit to practicing these new skills. You might find, for example, that these skills are pretty easy for you to use when the topic is money, for example, but harder for you to keep in mind when the topic is parenting. Or you might find that these skills are pretty easy for you to practice for a while, and then you get hit with a series of challenges that leave you feeling more stretched, more fragile, more tender, more easily set off. Noticing patterns like this is really important because it allows us to advocate. We can say to our partner, listen, I know that having difficult conversations about parenting is really hard for me. So let's go slowly. Let's commit to taking breaks as needed. Let's practice using that speaker-listener technique, which you remember was skill three from our last episode. So these 10 skills kind of become your roadmap. They remind you of what a more empowered, more compassionate, more effective mindset looks like when it comes to conflict. When we embark on a journey of any kind, we need to know where we're heading, right? And here, our journey is towards navigating conflict in a healthier way. And these 10 skills become our roadmap. They give us a structure. They point us in the direction that we want to go. And what I know for sure is that using these 10 skills, even just a bit more consistently, will help you begin to view moments of misunderstanding or disappointment as even just a little bit less scary or a little bit less upsetting. Because ultimately, these painful moments do have a lot to teach us about ourselves and about our partner if and as we're able to stay even a little bit more engaged, a little bit more calm on the inside, a little bit more curious, a little bit more patient, more gentle with ourselves and with our partner. So around here, we are all about practice, 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 and lots of grace. This week, I'm going to teach you skills six through 10. We are going to cover in today's episode the following. <laughs> Skill six, adopting a we perspective. Skill seven, avoiding intimacy blocking language. Skill eight, using intimacy promoting language. Skill nine, offering heartfelt apologies. Skill 10, forgiving and looking ahead. <laughs> we got a lot of ground to cover, y'all. If you are a newsletter subscriber, you will receive a worksheet in this week's newsletter that summarizes everything we've covered in these two episodes. If you want to become a newsletter subscriber, you can sign up by clicking on the link in the show notes or by heading to dralexandrasolomon.com and scrolling to the bottom of the homepage. And then you can get on the newsletter and receive these bonuses like this week's worksheet, which packs a punch and which puts everything you need in one place for easy reference going forward. All right, I'm gonna do the same caveat this week that I did last week because it's just that important. As I did in part one of the series, I want to remind you that we are focusing today on ordinary, normative, expected conflict. So unfortunately, we know that in intimate partnerships, conflict can become abusive, toxic, and dangerous. Some signs of unhealthy conflict include yelling and screaming, name-calling, intimidation and threats, throwing things, and any violence or putting hands on a partner. These are significant problems that affect mental health and relational well-being, 
and they are problems that cannot adequately or appropriately be addressed in this format. They are problems that warrant the care of a couples therapist or a social service agency that can help with safety planning. And we have included some of those resources in the show notes. All right, skill number six, adopting a we perspective. To set up this skill, which is one of my favorites, I want to give you a quick and nerdy backstory. Within the field of couples therapy, there are a variety of approaches. There are different ways of treating the kinds of problems that people bring to couples therapy. You've got your cognitive behavioral couples therapist. You've got your insight-oriented couples therapist. You've got your emotion-focused couples therapist. And each of these teams has different language, a different set of priorities, different beliefs about how to reduce relationship distress and create change. And each of these teams has done research and their research findings show the effectiveness of their particular approach to treating couples. So then in 2014, a team of researchers, Doug Sprinkle, Sean Davis, and Jay LeBeau, conducted something that's called common factors research. So these three researchers looked across all the major models of couples therapy in order to explore whether and what these approaches have in common, what unites these different approaches, and whether there's any kind of unifying mechanisms for creating change. And these researchers found four common factors that underlie all of the major approaches to treating couples. I am not going to talk you through all four, but what I do want you to know for our purposes here is that these common factors researchers found that no matter the model or the school or the team, no matter what brand of couples therapy any given couples therapist is practicing, every single approach to helping couples do stuff differently has a methodology that helps couples conceptualize their difficulties in relational terms. In other words, no matter the brand of couples therapy, every approach has some set of tools or strategies that helps partners move away from a story that sounds like this, my partner did this to me, and move towards a story that sounds like this. The more my partner does X, the more I do Y, and round and round we go, stuck in this dance or this pattern or this cycle. Every approach to couples therapy has a method for helping a couple conceptualize their difficulties in relational terms. Why is that? Because it is so much easier to see what the other person did to create this problem. And we tend to have a really hard time holding a more complex, a more nuanced understanding of what actually are relational dynamics. It's not that you did this thing to me. It's that the more you do this, the more I do this, and we get caught up in this cycle or this dance. Unfortunately, our default setting tends to be that it's so much easier to point our finger and focus on what our partner is doing. We are all at risk of telling what the author Chimamanda Adichie calls the single story. We're at risk of telling the single story. It's harder for us to see how our words and our actions 
contribute to a problem. And it's even harder to look at a conflict as a pattern or a dance or a cycle. When a couple sits down for their first session of couples therapy, if we were able to kind of see the little thinking bubbles above each partner's head in session one of couples therapy, it would look like this. Above partner A's head would be a little thinking bubble that says, oh, finally we're here. Finally, this couples therapist and I are going to help partner B understand the error of their ways. Unfortunately, above partner B's head is also a thinking bubble that says, yay, I can't wait for this therapist to help me explain to partner A all of the ways in which they are a pain in my ass. That's what session one of couples therapy tends to feel like. A couples therapist's job is to help our partner understand how to just be a bit different. In fact, Michelle Obama tells a story in her book, Becoming, about going to couples therapy with Barack and feeling exactly like this. She really thought on session one that couples therapy was going to be about helping Barack be a better husband. And then she was quite taken aback when the couples therapist also helped her understand her role in their dynamics. So if Michelle struggles with shifting into a we perspective, you know the rest of us are going to struggle with this as well. The good news is that I am going to teach you a very specific skill that you can use even without the help of a couples therapist that will help you adopt this we perspective, this we perspective that is so essential that every approach to couples therapy has some way to help a couple move into a we perspective. So back in 2013, my friend, Northwestern University psychology professor, Dr. Eli Finkel, who you are going to meet coming up a few episodes from now on Reimagining Love, he did a study that he refers to as the marriage hack. He and some other researchers recruited 120 happily and recently married couples. And in the first year of the study, every four months, the participants wrote about the most significant fight they had within the previous four months. And then in the second year of the study, the researchers divided the couples into two groups. The control group continued with the same plan. Every four months, you write about your most significant fight. But the experimental group did something different. They wrote a summary of their most significant fight, but they also wrote about the conflict from the perspective of a neutral third person who wants the best for both partners. That additional writing prompt took the people in the second group an additional 21 minutes of writing during the course of that year. And what the researchers found was pretty amazing. Most studies about marriage do show that relationship satisfaction does decline during the first few years of marriage. And so the couples in both groups did report some decline in relationship satisfaction, but the differences emerged between these two groups in the second year of the study. The couples that were in the control group, the ones who just wrote about their fights, they kept showing this kind of slow decline in relationship satisfaction. Where the couples in the second group, the ones who adopted the outsider perspective, who took on that perspective of a neutral third party who wants the best for both of them, those couples showed no additional decline and they reported that their fights were less distressing over time. 
Okay, so what does this mean for us? This means that the next time you and your partner are hitting a bump in the road, you're kind of veering into some difficult territory, emotions are escalating, you're starting to feel that sense of friction between you, press pause. Take a mindful timeout, take an intentional reset, step away, and literally sit down and write about this conflict from the perspective of a neutral third party who cares about each of you, a neutral third party who has both of your best interests at heart. And I want you to like literally use your names as you write. So for me, it might sound like Alexandra is afraid of X and Todd is really wanting or needing Y. You're literally like using both your name and your partner's name, right? Because you are shifting your perspective rather than seeing it through your eyes or rather than seeing it through your partner's eyes. You are really looking at this conflict from a third perspective, a perspective of a neutral third party who cares about both of you. This practice, this scientifically backed practice is going to help you adopt a we perspective. It's going to help you move from you did this to me or I did this to you into looking at the pattern or the dance or the cycle. It's going to help you see the role that each of you play in creating the problem and it will help you feel a bit more empathy and compassion for your partner. It's going to help you get a little bit more clear on what you want to do next. I'm eager for you to try that practice. And if you do this, I want to hear about how it goes for you. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and Yue Shu. Julie and Yue bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. Moving on to skill seven, avoiding intimacy blocking language. The words we choose and the tone that we use to convey our thoughts and our feelings matter, and they matter a lot. And certainly, When we're feeling distressed, this leads our words to become more sharp, more severe, and more extreme. But I want to posit to you the idea that the arrow goes in the other direction also. Our extreme, sharp, severe language amplifies our distress, right? So we're saying that when we get upset, our words become more sharp, more severe, more extreme, but also the more sharp, severe, and extreme our language becomes, the more upset we're going to feel. And they hold the power to move our partner into a state of greater distress as well. So skill seven is about avoiding the language that tends to block intimacy, language that tends to reinforce our pain, language that tends to push our partner further away. 
I'm talking here about words or language choices that make an unfortunate situation even more polarized or even more extreme. So if you're ready, let's talk through six intimacy blocking language choices that are really common, that I hear a lot in couples therapy, that I certainly, certainly have been guilty of using in my own marriage. I have trained my brain to listen for these six language choices, to notice the urge to make these language choices, and to choose something more intimacy promoting instead. So here they are. Here's the six. Avoid using always and never. You always do this to me. You never have my back. Always and never are efforts to convey the depth of our distress. But saying always and never pretty much guarantees that your partner is going to come back to you with an example that disproves your declaration. They're going to say something like, I do have your back. Remember last week when my mom called and da 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 And then when your partner brings up the example that disproves your declaration, you're going to feel like your present concern has been invalidated and on and on and on. So always and never fall into the criticism category of Dr. John Gottman's Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. So if you remember from episode eight of Reimagining Love with Liz Earnshaw, she talked us through those four horsemen of the apocalypse. So if that language is sounding new to you, go ahead and head back to episode eight and listen to that. But always and never fall into that criticism category and they're ineffective. They amplify relationship distress. They erode trust. Using always and never also implies or conveys that you believe there is a consistent personality flaw that lives within your partner, which is going to create more panic and more distress inside of you versus there is an unmet need that you have, or there's a concern about how our partner has handled something, right? That distinction between who our partner is and what our partner has done. So just stick with the example. You didn't. I wanted you to. I feel disappointed that you didn't, right? You can even describe a pattern. I'm concerned because this has happened a few times lately. That's very different than going into always and never. All right, number two, character assassination. This is a term that therapists use. Character assassination is that sense of like just describing your partner in ways that convey that you believe they are broken, damaged, you know, beyond hope and repair. So saying things like, you're crazy, you're an asshole, you're lazy, you're just like your father, right? These are getting us towards that realm of emotionally abusive language if it becomes a pattern. Certainly, name calling and character assassination are antithetical to creating and nurturing a healthy relational ecosystem, right? They just block connection. Certainly, again, this language conveys that we are really, really upset, but it's also language that's going to make us more upset. And it's language that certainly is going to push our partner away, make them feel unsafe, spike their defensiveness, and ensure that we are not going to get what we need. Number three, arguing that others agree with you. So saying things like, my friends all think, or my therapist said, or any normal rational person knows, these are all intimacy blocking language choices. So when we feel like our concerns are not being heard or understood, it is really understandable 
that we want to bring in the reinforcements, right? Our therapist, our friends, uh, people in the media, whatever it is. But arguing that others agree with you promotes a kind of right-wrong mentality that's going to keep the two of you stuck. Because then it becomes very likely that your partner's going to say something like, why are you talking to your friends about our problems? It's going to feel like a boundary violation. And or your partner's going to feel ganged up on and therefore more defensive. So when you have an urge to kind of bring in those reinforcements, what I would like you to remember is that your concerns warrant your partner's consideration simply because they are your concerns. I don't want you to feel like you need to bring in backup in order to feel legitimized. In a happy, healthy relationship, when our partner experiences a concern or when we experience a concern, that is reason enough to slow down and attend to that concern without needing to bring in the research, the opinion of friends, the opinion of a therapist, right? That concern ought to just be able to stand on its own two feet. Intimacy blocking language choice number four, guilt trips. Guilt trips sound like this. I do it for you. If you really love me, you would. What happens when we use that guilt trip language is that it creates the conditions for our partner to respond by saying, but you don't have to do it for me. Or, well, if you really love me, you wouldn't ask me to do that. The guilt trip language creates the conditions where we're going to get caught up in a cycle. Your need, your longing, your wish, your desire, your claim is legitimate all on its own and and deserves to be heard as such. Intimacy blocking language choice number five, absolutes or shoulds. Very little in relationships is an absolute capital T truth. So absolutes and shoulds feel shaming. Again, like your partner is inherently wrong or damaged or deficient. And language that conveys to your partner that their way is deficient or abnormal or wrong is just further going to shut your partner down. So again, I want you to feel entitled to your perspective or your experience without resorting to abstract shoulds or generalized rules. If it feels bad to you, if it didn't sit well with you, that's reason enough to ask your partner to talk it through with you. And the last one is something that therapists call the kitchen sink. (laughs) It's really common. It's unhelpful. It blocks intimacy. And couples therapists see it all the time. What it looks like is this. The conversation starts with a specific concern. I didn't like it when you told our family about our travel plans without first checking in with me. But then it quickly chains to a bunch of other concerns. It reminds me of that time that you told my friend about my raise and that time that you made plans with your brother and, 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 right? So all of these, rather than just focusing on this one specific thing that happened, we're now talking about all of these things. It's sort of like that, like everything but the kitchen sink, right? So kitchen sinking is when all of these concerns start to chain together and we put them all at our partner's feet at the same time. And it's understandable because sometimes a particular moment does feel like it's chained to a larger pattern of behavior. And especially for those of us who thrive on pattern recognition, it can sometimes happen without us even being consciously aware because we're just kind of connecting all these dots really quickly. And so we're bringing them up as 
obviously tied together and obviously part of one larger pattern. But the problem is that when you lay out five examples all at once, it's very likely that your partner is going to feel flooded. And when your partner feels flooded, it's going to block their ability to respond to this concern that you have in this moment because they're overwhelmed by all of the concerns. Sometimes kitchen sinking happens because we've stored up lots and lots of tiny resentments or tiny slights, and they all come tumbling out at once. So we can prevent kitchen sinking by adopting what Gottman calls a low negativity threshold, meaning that healthy, happy couples tend to address the little pebble in the shoe before it becomes a big old blister. So kind of creating those relational agreements that we're going to bring up concerns even when they feel small and even when they feel like they aren't a big deal because we just want to keep the space between us really clear and we want to avoid creating the conditions where one or both of us builds up a whole bunch of resentments that then there ends up being this like straw that breaks the camel's back and they all come out and we've got that kitchen sinking situation. There's our six examples of the kinds of intimacy blocking language choices that I want us to become a bit more conscious of. And I know that sometimes people can feel resistant to the idea that we need to be mindful of our language choices. And sometimes people will say to me, but these are my feelings. I'm just expressing my feelings. And I want to be clear, feelings are legit. All the feelings are legit. It's just also the case that in order to take care of our relationships, we do need to commit to avoiding the kinds of language choices that guarantee we are not going to get what we want and what we need, which most of the time what we want and what we need is to feel heard and validated and understood. And so in order to feel heard and validated and understood by our partner, we need to kind of set the stage and help co-create the conditions for empathy, for understanding and validation. Okay, skill number eight, using intimacy promoting language. I just laid out a whole bunch of stuff that I want us to avoid saying. So let's talk now about what I would like us to practice saying instead. Let's talk about some of my favorite empowered communication practices. What you're going to see is the theme that runs through all seven of these empowered communication practices is the idea that couples therapists love to say, which is that behind every criticism is an unmet need. So the intimacy blocking language was lots and lots of criticism, right? And now that we step into skill eight, using intimacy promoting language, what we're going to see here is these are all pathways that help us identify and verbalize our unmet need. And what I know for sure is that conflict goes so differently when we can move from being critical of our partner and move into identifying and naming that unmet need. And each of these intimacy-promoting language choices is going to give you a pathway, a way of going from that finger-pointing, escalating, critical stance into something that is more vulnerable and more inviting. And again, none of this is easy. So take little bites, try it on for size, see how it goes, and then make sure 
that you really, really celebrate yourself for trying something different because it's not easy. And here we're talking about getting vulnerable and nobody has ever said that vulnerability is easy. Intimacy promoting language choice number one, I statements. Pretty classic. You maybe have heard folks talking about this before, but committing ourselves to using I statements. I feel hurt. I feel misunderstood. I feel sad. This does not, however, count as an I statement. I feel like you're being an asshole. That doesn't count as an I statement. The I statement is about identifying our feeling, our desire, our perspective. So making an I statement is pretty much the opposite of making that character assassination we talked about a few moments ago. And making I statements goes a long way towards reducing our partner's defensiveness or reducing the chances that our partner is going to become defensive. Okay, take it a step further with intimacy promoting language choice number two, which therapists call the XYZ statement, which goes like this. When you did X in situation Y, I felt Z. So for example, when you told our family about our travel plans when we were together for dinner on Sunday, I felt sad and embarrassed. When you did X in situation Y, I felt Z. What you're doing when you make an XYZ statement is you're bringing up a specific concern in a specific context And it has that element of the I statement. It really is inviting collaboration and conversation rather than rationalization, explanation, defensiveness, which just feels horrible to hear. And then you can supercharge it with intimacy promoting language choice number three, which includes these magical seven words. The story I am telling myself is dot, dot, dot. So it sounds like this. When you told your family about our travel plans, when we were together for dinner on Sunday, I felt sad and embarrassed. And the story I'm telling myself is that your family is more important to you than I am. Those seven words offer grace to your partner. They add a little wedge of light between the thing that happened and what you imagine the thing that happened says about you, about them, about your relationship. Your knee-jerk reaction might be to say something like this. You love your family more than you love me. Your family is your priority, not me. And when you say things like that, you have added a ton of meaning. You've gotten inside your partner's head, right? You've made assumptions. You've made connections. You've added a layer of meaning to a painful situation. When you adopt this practice of saying, the story I'm telling myself is, it adds some space between the thing that happened and your interpretation of what happened. We are meaning-making creatures. So we make up these stories very quickly, sometimes without even consciously knowing, right? Again, it's like we see these dots and we connect the dots with this particular meaning. So it's an intimacy-promoting practice to slow ourselves down and to force ourselves to notice that we've gone from the thing that happened to the story 
about the thing that happened. And listen, it may be that the story we've made up is 100% true and accurate. And our partner's going to say, yeah, no, that is my truth. And you added up those dots correctly. But let's check it out first, rather than making that assumption, rather than telling our partner what their behavior means. We can tell our partner how that behavior landed for us, right? That's the I statement. And we can talk about what we would like instead. We'll get to that in a moment. But let's commit ourselves to resisting the urge to make meaning and to instead get curious about meaning. And the way we do that is by weaving in that language of the story I'm telling myself is, right? That opens up the possibility that our partner can talk us through the degree to which we've gotten that story right, the degree to which that story aligns with our partner's perspective, our partner's intention, our partner's wishes and desires. Intimacy promoting skill number four is to personalize your requests. So remember back to skill seven, I had talked about avoiding that vague, my friends all think, or my therapist says, or any rational person knows. So here's the antidote. And the antidote to that kind of like everybody knows or any rational person would understand, the antidote here is to personalize your request. So rather than talking about how your therapist thinks you should, just say it from your own perspective, right? See instead what happens when you say, it would mean so much to me if you would talk to me first about this before you talk to your family. Is it more vulnerable? Yes, which is exactly why it's more intimacy promoting. For those of us who have a long history of chronically unmet needs, of making ourselves very small, perhaps going back to our family of origin, it can be really, really difficult to even identify our needs, much less articulate our needs, much less do it in a way that is personal. But that's the intimacy-promoting practice I'm inviting you to lean into. It would mean so much to me if you would X, Y, or Z. Intimacy-promoting practice number five, criticize actions, not character. And we can do that by explicitly conveying respect. I know what a good parent you are. I know how stressed you are at work. So being very, very explicit about respect, about benefit of the doubt, about context. And we can do that. We can criticize action rather than character by focusing on intent rather than impact. I know that you did not mean to hurt my feelings. I know that your intent was to create a fun surprise for me, right? So kind of getting clear that, listen, I am hurting, I am disappointed, I am confused, and I know that your intention was not to hurt me, to confuse me, to upset me. That can be very, very important to say out loud. It can help reduce our partner's defensiveness. It can remind us. Sometimes we say that to our partner in order to remind ourselves that our partner is a good and flawed human being, just like we are. Intimacy promoting practice number six is staying on topic. So address the concern at hand. This one is the antidote to 
what we were talking about before, kitchen sinking, right? So rather than focusing on all of the examples that prove this one point, focus on this particular example, this concern at hand. If it's your partner who's doing the kitchen sinking, if your partner is bringing up five concerns at once, see if you can help the two of you just tackle one at a time. And you can say that explicitly. Like, I hear that you have five concerns. Let's try to see if we can slow down and just focus on the one that's happening right now rather than trying to tackle them all at once, right? Rather than that kind of like whack-a-mole, like whoosh, 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 with the, <laughs> the little puffy hammer on these little moles that were popping up. That's that feeling that we have when we are in that kitchen sinking mode. So making a commitment, making an agreement that we will stay on topic, address one concern at a time. And then the last one, when requesting change, be clear and specific. You'll remember from last week's episode, sometimes our conflict, in fact, 69% of the time, our conflicts are about a basic kind of unresolvable difference between ourselves and our partner. And what we want and need is to be understood and validated. But sometimes there is an actual change that we would like to make, something we'd like to try to do differently to prevent this from happening again or to make it a little bit easier next time around. And so it's helpful to make a request that is clear and that is specific. So um, something like going forward, it would mean a lot to me if you would check with me about plans before you make them. Because life is complicated and messy, it's important to remember that there are so many shades of gray between these two extremes. Extreme one is like anarchy, right? Having no guideposts, no expectations, no agreements. That's one end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum is attempting to create a rule for every possible iteration of every scenario that might come up. There's lots and lots of shades of gray between them. And in my Intimate Relationships 101 e-course, one of the activities that I have people in that course do, which is available on the website, in the show notes, there's lots of ways to learn about the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course. But one of the activities in that course is a values card sort where you print out this list of values and you cut them up and you sort them into piles. And this helps individuals and couples get clear and conscious about the values that they want to have guide their decisions and guide their agreements. And it ensures that requests for change can be hooked onto those relational values that you both have agreed matter to you. So that can be a way of kind of navigating that space between expecting nothing and attempting to make a rule for every possible scenario is kind of agreeing to what are the key values that we both hold dear and that then guide the kinds of agreements that we need to make that minimize the chances of rupture and maximize the chances of flow and connection and ease. Okay, y'all. So skill seven and eight, the intimacy blocking language and the intimacy promoting language covered a ton of ground. You're doing great. We have two skills to go. If you need to press pause and go dance it out for a little while, <laughs> go for it. But I do want you to come back for skills nine and 10, because those are both about repair, how we move from 
disconnection back into connection. Skill number nine is offering heartfelt apologies. The topic of apologies is a huge one, and it's one that we are going to come back to for sure in future episodes of Reimagining Love. For our purposes here, I'm going to talk about the skill of saying I'm sorry. I'm going to talk about apologies as a skill that some of us (laughs) need to work on learning and refining and practicing. The giggle is because when Todd Solomon listens to this episode and we get to the heartfelt apologies, he's going to giggle because I am not famous for my heartfelt apologies. It continues to be a growing edge for me. My heartfelt apologies end up frequently being blocked by my own feelings of shame. So we're going to definitely have to do an episode on the ways in which shame (laughs) blocks repair. But for our purposes here, we're going to talk about apologies, saying I'm sorry as a skill, because again, sometimes it is like the practice that helps the deeper healing. And sometimes it's the deeper healing that makes it easier to practice. That arrow goes in both directions. It becomes easier when we start to look at the dynamic, the cycle, the pattern, right? How each of us participates in creating these painful moments, that opens up a space where it becomes clearer what the heartfelt apology is that each partner can, in fact, offer the other, right? If we each participated in creating this cycle, then there's an apology that each of us can make for how this moment really went off the rails. And when we say, I'm sorry, what we are saying ultimately is the health of this relationship matters more than my need to win or to be right. It is a deeply relational declaration. So a vital relational self-awareness question for you to sit with is, what is the piece of this conflict that I can take accountability for and apologize for? What is the kernel of truth in my partner's perspective? Identify this kernel of truth and Own it 100% completely. So it may sound like I own that I have been more irritable than usual this week. I am sorry that I snapped at you for watching John Oliver without me. (laughs) I wish that instead of snapping at you, I had instead just expressed my disappointment. So owning that piece of it, taking responsibility for the ways in which we handle the situation in a way that we don't feel proud of, we don't feel good about, and that had an impact on our partner. I've got eight elements for you, eight elements of a heartfelt apology. A heartfelt apology includes these. Number one, taking responsibility. I did X. I snapped at you. I raised my voice, right? I didn't call you when I said I would call you. It just takes responsibility. A heartfelt apology also names the impact. What I did hurt you. What I did confused you. What I did embarrassed you. Third element of a heartfelt apology is a heartfelt apology bears witness. So perhaps in a heartfelt apology, you ask something like, can you tell me how you're feeling? Or what was that like for you? Within a heartfelt apology, 
we are willing to bear witness to the impact of our behavior or our words. A heartfelt apology avoids the word if. So for example, don't say, I'm sorry if I hurt you. It's like (laughs) nails on a chalkboard, isn't it? Because by this point in the conversation, we've already established that I'm hurt, right? So the if really negates the heartfelt nature of that apology. I'm sorry if I hurt you. Do you hear that? The if is really minimizing and deflecting. The next element of a heartfelt apology is a heartfelt apology avoids the word but. So for example, don't say, I'm sorry, but you know I didn't mean it. Generally speaking, anything that you say after the but negates everything you said before the but, right? So I'm sorry is actually a complete sentence as it is. So really, really, really resist the urge to add that but. A heartfelt apology avoids the passive voice. For example, don't say, I'm sorry if you were offended. That's like a double whammy, isn't it? Because it's got the if in it and it's got the passive voice. You were offended, right? That again is really shifty. It's really invalidating because I've already established with you that I felt offended. I felt hurt. So I'm sorry if you were offended puts the blame subtly and sneakily back on me for my reaction versus what we're doing in a heartfelt apology is just taking responsibility for what we did. We did a thing and it had an impact and that impact was yucky. And we want our partner to feel the opposite of yucky, right? The next one is avoid cross-complaining. So don't say, I'm sorry I did X, but you did Y. So again, it's sort of that double whammy of there's a but in there and there's a cross-complaint in there, right? So the but is invalidating and the you did Y, you know, I did X, I'm sorry I did X, but you did Y. It's spinning it back on the other person. Now, what we're moving ourselves towards is a space where both of us can offer apologies to each other for the element of the conflict that we handled in an ineffective or hurtful way. So the hope is that I can take responsibility for my part. I did X. I'm sorry that I did X. And that then you can step forward and say, I'm sorry that I did Y. So we can avoid that cross-complaining by just working together to create the conditions where I'm sorry is pretty easy to say and well-received and that my apology invites forward your apology. The last element of a heartfelt apology isn't always the case, but full, and this can really help a heartfelt apology land, is to offer an amends action or a change. So for example, saying something like, I'm sorry that I did X. I wonder if this would be helpful going forward, right? Make sure whatever you offer is doable and that you can commit to it. And again, it's not always the case that there needs to even really be a changed behavior, but it does help. Some people, there's that quote, the best apology is changed behavior. So sometimes it is helpful to say, I'm sorry I did X. And going forward, I'm going to commit to putting a a reminder in my phone. I'm going to commit to checking in with you before I make these kinds of decisions. So again, just make sure it's doable and that you really can commit to it. And we're not expecting perfection, but we are 
We like progress. Final few reminders in terms of heartfelt apologies. Remember that you can offer an apology even if you did not mean to hurt your partner. In fact, I hope that you did not mean to hurt your partner, right? You can have both innocent intent and harmful impact. Apologies in that context are still necessary. You remember that you can offer an apology even if you think your partner is, quote, overreacting. Overreacting is one of those words that I would like us to please just ban from our relational vocabularies. None of us is the head actuary in charge of emotional responses, right? That's not a real job. None of us is in charge of objectively measuring the appropriate size of a reaction given a particular context. So when we say overreacting, it is um, judgmental and it says a whole lot about us, in fact. If I say that you're overreacting, basically I'm telling on myself and I'm telling you that I'm feeling overwhelmed, that I'm feeling confused, right? But what I'm doing is flipping it on you and saying that the problem is the size of your reaction. None of us gets to measure the appropriate size of an emotional response given a particular stimulus. So you can offer an apology even if you are feeling somewhat confused by the size of your partner's reaction. And in fact, in offering your apology, it may invite your partner to begin to hold up that mirror and check in with themselves and try to better understand why they had the size of the reaction that they had, which hint, very likely has to do with some old pain point, some old wound that's gotten activated, right? A lot of what we do in this reimagining love space is talk about the ways in which in our intimate relationships, we will activate our own and each other's deeper wounds, childhood wounds, family of origin wounds. And so sometimes that reaction that seems like it is bigger than what's happening right now in real time is the blinking indicator light that tells us that something old has gotten tripped on, right? Some old family of origin wound, some old pain point has gotten activated. But telling your partner that they are overreacting is very likely to close the door to any kind of conversation that's going to illuminate and explore that old pain point. The apology is what opens the door to more vulnerability, more conversation, more exploration. And then finally, you can still offer an apology even if you feel really sure that you would not have been hurt if the tables were turned. Why? Because we're different. (laughs) We're different from each other. We have different sensitivities, different tender spots, different little zones of activation. So I can still apologize to you because you were hurt and that's what matters to me, right? What matters is that you were hurt and therefore I can apologize for hurting you. Skill 10, home stretch. Skill 10 is forgiving and looking ahead. So here again, just like apologies, forgiveness is a huge topic. It's one that I wrote about in my first book, Loving Bravely. It's one that we talk about quite a bit in my e-course about trust. And it's one that I feel very sure we will come back to in future episodes of Reimagining Love. For our purposes here, I'm going to talk about forgiveness as a skill, an essential skill for the health of our relationships. 
knowing full well that sometimes forgiveness is not possible, sometimes forgiveness is not advisable, some violations are just relationship-ending violations. We may choose to forgive an ex-partner quietly, privately, inside of our own hearts, to spare ourselves the difficulty of continuing to carry that pain. All of that is true. What I'm going to focus us on here for our purposes here in this episode is the notion that if what we want is to remain in an intimate relationship, and if what we want is for that intimate relationship to feel healthy, to feel safe, we are going to need to learn how to practice forgiveness. We're going to need to learn how to put the past in the past and look ahead and step forward with our partner. Otherwise, we build up resentment that isn't good for our individual health or our relational health. The bottom line here is that forgiveness does not make you a fool. Forgiveness makes you relational. It's an essential relational skill. And like every other skill we've covered here, the process of forgiving is a relational process. Your ability to step into accountability invites me to step into forgiveness. Your willingness to apologize invites me to forgive. These things are tied together. My willingness to forgive also makes it easier for you to be accountable now and going forward. So this is a back and forth. This is a process. For Apology and forgiveness exist together, right? They are two sides of the same coin. I have two quotes I want to share with you from Rabbi Kushner. Quotes from his classic book, which is called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. The first quote that I want to share is this one. Good people will do good things, lots of them, because they are good people. They will do bad things because they are human. And the second quote is, are you capable of forgiving and loving the people around you even if they have hurt you and let you down by not being perfect. Can you forgive them and love them because there aren't any perfect people around and because the penalty for not being able to love imperfect people is condemning oneself to loneliness. Ooh, I love those quotes. Notice any reactivity that you're having because I am not asking you to be a doormat. I am not asking you to accept any old kind of treatment. I am asking you to look at the stories that you perhaps attach to the idea of forgiveness and to invite in this added layer that forgiveness does not make you a fool. It makes you relational, that it's required for us to be able to put slights, to put conflict in the rearview mirror and to focus on rebuilding and opening ourselves back up again. So I think about forgiveness on a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum is the really quick, it's fine, let's move on. At the other end of the spectrum is holding a grudge, kind of chewing on that slight or that wound in an ongoing way, withholding forgiveness. So those are the two ends of the spectrum, right? The really, really quick forgiveness, it's fine, let's move on. And then the really slow, the absence of forgiveness, the holding on of a grudge. This is, of course, not an exact science, but check in on that spectrum about where you tend to fall. Those of us who tend towards the really quick, 
it's fine, let's move on, that end of the spectrum. Forgive quickly because that space between ourselves and our partner feels really threatening. That like ongoing tension, that dis-ease between ourselves and our partner can feel frightening, can feel scary, can feel threatening. Or perhaps we do the really quick, it's fine, let's move on because we feel guilty that our partner is feeling badly. Those of us who tend towards the holding a grudge end of the spectrum perhaps do that because we want to ensure that our partner really gets it, right? Like I'm going to hold a grudge. I'm going to withhold my forgiveness because I really want to make sure that you've learned your lesson. This end of the spectrum can really sort of teeter on punishment. Ultimately, we want our partner to step into accountability because that's who they want to be rather than because they feel adequately and amply punished by us. Accountability that somebody steps into only because they're being punished does not really set the stage for lasting change. So if you find yourself on that end of the spectrum kind of holding a grudge and you're doing that because you believe it's the only way that change can get created, I wonder if you might consider that in fact, we are motivated to create change because we want to feel better in our own skin. We want to feel more like we are living in our own integrity, not because we've been adequately punished. So we can move ourselves out of those extremes towards something more in the middle of the spectrum by checking in with ourselves. So what I'm saying here is that I want us to figure out how to occupy some shade of gray between forgiving too quickly and taking too long to forgive, basically. And we can move ourselves towards something that's more in the middle of the spectrum by checking in with ourselves. When we're in a situation where our partner has made an attempt to apologize, to own, to take responsibility, and now the ball is in our court, to let go, to move on, to step back into connection. We need to take some time and check in with ourselves. So remembering that our emotions are like waves. They rise and they fall. Are you feeling yourself kind of naturally beginning to settle, beginning to feel a bit more calm on the inside, feeling like there's a bit less pain or charge around this thing that happened, right? You're letting in your partner's accountability. You're letting in some perspective. Are your feelings starting to settle naturally? If not, maybe you want to do some practices to help your emotions settle a little bit, right? A hot shower, a run, a walk in nature, listening to music, like just helping the body settle can create a little bit of space inside of ourselves that feels like forgiveness, that feels like acceptance. I don't like that this happened, but it did happen and I'm committed to this relationship, and I know that there is no perfect partner, and I know that I'm not perfect either, right? That those practices to kind of settle the body down can start to invite in some of those gentler thoughts. Are you beginning to hold both your hurt and your compassion for your partner? That can also be a clue that you're starting to integrate this conflict and you're feeling ready to move towards forgiveness. As you and your partner move through the apology and through forgiveness, it's very likely that you're not going to immediately step back into 
silly and fun and playful and sexy and let your guard down a hundred percent, right? It's pretty unrealistic to go from tender conflict right into silly, fun, playful. But imagine moving more from conflict into comfort, into silly and fun, right? So thinking about comfort as a middle ground or a middle space that goes from the conflict into back to feeling easy and close and connected. So focusing on comfort. So see if you can identify something that the two of you can do as a couple that is low risk, high comfort, right? What's kind of the low hanging fruit here? What would be an easy, connecting, comfortable thing to do together? Maybe going to get some coffee, maybe running some errands, maybe watching a show together. So it's important to be willing to be proactive, right? That we have to be proactive about creating the conditions to feel comfortable around each other. And that as we feel comfortable around each other, we can feel a bit more playful, a bit more silly, a bit more erotically connected. That thinking about comfort as a way station between conflict and repair. Knowing full well that as you come back together, you may both be feeling a little bit tender and a little bit tentative. I think it can be helpful to name that, saying something like, I'm glad we're going for a walk, even though I think we're both feeling a little bit shaky still, right? As you come back together, proactively doing something that feels comforting and comfortable, it may be helpful to have a little bit of a conversation together in which you reflect on your process. And I'm gonna give you four questions that you can ask your partner and ask yourself as you reflect together on your process. Those questions are, one, what are you proud of about how you handled this frustrating experience with your partner? What are you proud of about how your partner handled this frustrating experience with you? What went better than it would have gone six months ago or two years ago or last week? And the last question is, what went better than it would have gone in your family of origin? So those four questions are the kinds of questions that invite you to feel proud of your progress, proud of your partner. Maybe it literally is only, maybe the only positive thing you can say is that you're proud of your ability together. You're proud that you invited your partner to go on a walk. That's huge, right? Making a repair attempt inviting the two of you back into comfort is huge. That warrants being proud. If it's your partner who said, hey, let's go get some coffee, that warrants you being proud of them, right? Anything that we do to move into repair, even as we feel tender, tentative, and shaky is immensely loving and it's full of grace. And it's exactly what relationships need as you're coming off of a conflict. So if and when you notice negative thoughts about the conflict arising, shift your attention back to this moment, this cup of coffee, this walk, this conversation, this errand, right? So that we are in this moment. We're not back there in the conflict. We are right here in this moment of repair, of comfort, of tending to our relationship. Bringing your attention back to this moment is not ignoring that the two of you went through a conflict, it is instead proactively, intentionally, and mindfully looking ahead. It is taking responsibility for your part of shaping how the space between the two of you feels. 
There you have it. 10 essential skills for navigating conflict. I am so impressed at your ability and willingness to stick with me through these two episodes. It's a lot. I have every confidence that you have learned something new or connected some dots or that a little light bulb went off inside of your head. It's a lot of information. I would love for you to release the pressure on yourself to incorporate all 10 of these skills right here, right now. For right now, focus on maybe two or three that really resonated for you. Consider how they might, how those two or three skills might help you alter your approach or shift your language the next time you and your partner face a challenging situation or you and a loved one. Everything we talked about here can be used in intimate partnership. It can also be used in family relationships, friendships, and work relationships. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you here again next week. Are you interested in exploring how to rebuild trust after a betrayal like infidelity and to have support, tools, and insights on that journey? If so, I invite you to check out my brand new e-course, Can I Trust You Again? Rebuilding After Betrayal or Deceit. This is a five-module self-paced course based on research and clinical wisdom backed by my many years of experience working with couples who are attempting to rebuild after betrayal and my many years training marriage and family therapy graduate students to work with couples who are grappling with infidelity. You can take this course alone or with your partner at your own pace. After completing the lessons and activities in this course, you will better understand yourself and your partner, and you will have taken the necessary steps to begin healing the pain and reimagining your relationship in light of this crisis. This course will set you on your path forward, whether you continue as a couple or end the relationship. And If you're currently single, you will have the tools needed to lay a foundation of trust in your next relationship. To learn more and enroll, head to www.courses.dralexandrasolomon.com. You can also find the course link in the show notes. Thank you for listening to our show. Our producer is Elizabeth Vogt. Our editors are Mary Chan and Danelle Cloutier of Organized Sound Productions. Our theme music was composed by Slade Warnkin. Reimagining Love is executive produced by me, Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Do you have a relationship question that you want to have answered on the show? Follow the link in the show notes of this episode to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. I can't wait to hear from you.